0: Today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem um, to shouts of Hosanna in the highest. People came out from the city. Uh, As he was entering, he was riding on the back of a donkey, which was, uh, we're like, that just sounds weird. That was actually a sign of royalty. Uh, And they came out and they laid palm leaves on the road in front of him, right? That's why it's called Palm Sunday. Not because they were raising their palms, whoo-hoo, lift the roof. No, it was they were laying palm leaves on the road in front of him and shouting out Hosanna in the highest. And you're like, why are they yelling for Hosanna and who is she? Hosanna was a Hebrew word uh, that means God saves, Okay, this is the beginning of Passover week. And in Passover, it, it, just to remind you, Passover is, is the yearly time where Israel looked back to their deliverance from Egypt. Right? The tenth plague, when God sent the angel of death into the nation of Egypt uh, to judge them for, for not letting Israel go. God gave the Israelites uh, a unique way to be delivered. He he said, sacrifice a lamb, right? Create a Passover meal. But take the, the lamb's blood and, and put it on your doorposts and, and on the lintel. And, and when the angel of death comes and sees the blood of the lamb on your door, he will pass over your home. He will not visit you with judgment. And so that became known as Passover, right? That's the Passover feast. And, and so they're looking back and they're saying, God saves. Right, God delivered us out of Egypt, and we, we celebrate that God saves, and we celebrate that God continues to save and that God will save. So Hosanna is, is both a declaration of, of joy for the past, but also hope for the future. And as they're calling this out in front of Jesus, what they're saying is that God saves through Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the King. Right? This is, they, are, they are paving His way into the city with the hope that he will claim the throne of David. And in claiming the throne of David, he will deliver Israel from Roman dominion. That he will come in and there will be a political revolution that sets Israel free from the domination of Rome, this, this, this Gentile nation. That once again, God's people will be at the top of the pyramid of power and they will be able to dictate to all the other nations what life is supposed to be like, what rules should be followed, who is right and who is wrong. Palm Sunday. So, Palm Sunday leads to uh, Maundy Thursday, of course, so he comes in to shouts of celebration. Maundy Thursday is the night of the Last Supper. Maundy is one of those funny words that we always forget what it means. Monday comes from a Latin word, um, uh, mandatum, which means commandment. Um, Maundy Thursday is the night he washed his disciples' feet, shared the Passover meal with his disciples, gave that meal a new meaning, which we now call communion uh, or, or the Lord's Supper. Um, and then he went out and, and prayed in the garden until he was betrayed that, that later that evening. But on that night was also the night that he gave them a new commandment, right? And the new commandment was to love right? You are to love one another as I have loved you, right? He gave them a new commandment, Maundy Thursday, the night of the new commandment, right? Uh, And then, of course, comes Good Friday. He is betrayed in the middle of the night, taken through a series of kangaroo courts, um, finally handed over to Pilate, uh, who washes his hands of the matter even as he hands Jesus over uh, to the angry mob where he is crucified uh, and then buried. Silent Saturday, of course, is the Saturday in which Christ is entombed, leading to Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus rises from the dead. It's a crazy week, y'all, right? You want to talk about a roller coaster week? That's about it, right there. It didn't get much more roller coaster than that, right? Um, starts with the crowd singing him into the city as a triumphant king, and it ends with a mob dragging him out as its most despised criminal. How do you have a swing like that? right? How do people go from singing your praise to to demanding your death? Well, it's really not that unusual, to tell you the truth. I was warned early in my leadership that you need to be careful of those who sing your praise most loudly up front because they're the ones that are going to be calling for your death most loudly at your end. Um, And that's because people put, they project on you their hopes. They've got a plan for you, right? And and the more you seem to fit their plan, the more excited they get about your arrival. And the more disappointed they become when you don't meet their expectations. When you aren't who they expect you to be. When you don't tell the story they expect you to tell. Now, let's be fair. Not everybody who was at Palm Sunday was in the mob on Good Friday. Right, Jesus had not just the 12 disciples, he he had another group of the 70, another group of the 120. Um, there, were, there were many disciples in the city, and I'm guessing some of those disciples were there on, on Palm Sunday, laying the palms and, and celebrating Jesus in, and, and didn't come out on Good Friday to demand his death, right? Let, let's be fair about that. But everyone who was in that crowd, whether they were there on Palm Sunday or Good Friday... Betrayed Jesus. Every single one of them. Right? Those who weren't in the crowd on Friday, maybe they didn't show up to chant for his death, but they went silent. They disappeared. They went into self-protection mode. When they saw the, the, the city shift against Jesus, they're like, well, I guess I'll go home and just hide for a while. It's too dangerous to actually do anything else, and I guess he's not who we thought he was. I guess he doesn't have the power we thought he had. Many of these people who were there on Palm Sunday were considered the salt of the earth kind of people, good people, moral people, religious people. But here's what we need to get. Every person Jesus met, whether it was on Palm Sunday or Good Friday, ultimately wanted to hijack his power every person who met Jesus wanted to follow, lead Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll follow you as long as you go where I want to go. And if you're not going where I want to go, you're you're getting it kind of wrong, right? We see this happen all the time with the disciples. In fact, it leads to some fairly humorous interactions and sometimes some very, very serious ones, right? To the point where, where when Peter is like, like confronting Jesus a little bit, telling Jesus basically, hey, you're kind of getting this wrong. Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan, right? Um, every single one of, of his followers and every single one of us wants to hijack Jesus's power because ultimately we think we can tell a better story for our lives than, than God can. We think we can tell a better story for our nation. We think we can tell a better story for our community. We think we can tell humble, absolute dependence is so foreign to us. This idea that we should just show up and say, what are you doing and let me follow? You call the shots because your shots are always right. You tell the story because your story is always better. Is so foreign to us. It makes every controlling piece of us, like, freak out, right? Every, every piece of us that craves significance. No, no, no. What, what, if you're the hero, I'm not. Or every piece of us that that is like, no, I need comfort and rest. You're going to make me do hard things and we want to take control of the story. So that's what happened on Palm Sunday, right? They're out there singing the king into the city, but, arts, right? They they were there celebrating Jesus on one level, but on another, they were there seeking political revolution, or personal comfort, or growth and personal security, right? Jesus loved them, and they had a one. You know what I'm saying? Jesus loved them, and they had a wonderful plan for his life. They, they wanted to take control. They, they weren't walking in humble, joyful, complete dependence on God. They were trying to manipulate God. And here's what I'm going to catch. Good, salt-of-the-earth people. What I'm describing is rebellion. What I'm describing are hearts that want to de-God God. These are people who want to be God, not walk in humble dependence on God. These are people who want to control God, not follow God. These are people who think they know better than God, just like our first parents. They want to be like God. They don't want to be content being created in the image of God. And they are hiding their rebellion behind their morality. They are hiding their violence behind their niceness. Jesus wasn't fooled during Holy Week, and God wasn't fooled in redemptive history. Listen, God has taken extreme measures to reach extreme sinners. Now, of course, all sinners are extreme sinners, and all sinners are in desperate need of grace. But what we find is that the hardest sinners to reach, often the worst sinners, aren't those who are walking... An open, self-degrading sin. Often the ones that are hardest to reach, the worst sinners. The greatest sinners are the ones who hide their degradation behind a facade of morality and religious behavior. See, the prodigal son, you guys know the story of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son wasn't the one who was hardest to reach, the older brother was right? The, the prodigal, you guys remember the story, the, the prodigal son came to his father and said, um, I want the inheritance, so I'm going to pretend you're dead. Will you give me the inheritance I would get when you die, right? He wanted the benefit of the father's blessing without the obligation of relationship with the father, and the father, for some crazy reason, did it. It's like, all right, I'll pretend I'm dead. Here's your inheritance, right? And he went and squandered it on parties and prostitutes, right? Um, and, and 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 went down that degradating path until he was ultimately in a field with pigs, right? The only way he could survive was actually uh, working as a farmhand in, in a pig field, which was absolutely apprehensive to the Jewish mind, and having to fight with the pigs for the pods that they were being fed, right? That's pretty degrading. But the prodigal son, at the end of the story, isn't the one who's hardest to reach. The prodigal son comes to himself out in the field and decides, man, holy cow, even my servants have a better life than this in my father's house, my father is a generous man. My father is a loving man. My father is a good man. I will return to my father because he will receive me from his goodness. So he returns for grace. And the father runs to him, which is a, a public shame. Jewish men don't run. And they don't receive young men who have been out in pig fields without having gone through ceremonial cleanliness, right? He, he clothes him with his own, his own garment and gives him his own ring, right? I mean, it's an, an incredible, incredible demonstration. Um, the word prodigal, by the way, means wasteful. And it's not the son who's really prodigal in the story. It's, it's the father. The father is prodigal with his honor, prodigal with his wealth, right? But the older brother, um, man, the older brother. So the, the, the prodigal son... Knows he has to repent of his works of death, the things that he's done that hurt him, the things that he's done that dishonor others. But the older brother, the older brother who has obeyed the entire tame, continued performing, continued working, um, is completely blind to his dead works. Now, he doesn't have works of death, he has dead works. Good things that he thinks will give him life, but can't. Right? Works of death are the bad things we do trying to pursue pleasure or security, and we know they're bad when we do them. Dead works are the good things we do, thinking they're going to give us life. The older brother is filled with dead works. He has been obedient. He has worked hard. He has obeyed the rules. He has done everything that he is supposed to do. And he believes he has earned the blessing of his father. And when he sees his father throwing a party, he refuses to go in. He dishonors the father, just like the younger son did. The father goes out to meet him in the field, just like he went out to meet the younger son. He degrades himself. He sets aside his own honor. He goes and meets his son in his degradation. And yet the older son won't receive grace. The older son, in fact, feels so self-righteous in his dead morality that he feels justified in judging the father. He feels superior to the father. You're the one who's getting it wrong. You're the one who's missing the point. You're the one who's covered with dishonor and shame, not me. What's interesting is that both sons wanted the blessing of the father without humble dependence on the father. Both sons wanted the blessing of the father without the expense of deep, actual relationship with the father. But at the end of the story, it is not the rebel, but the moralist, who is left outside of the party, isolated and alone. The older brother, by far, is the harder mission field for the gospel. Today, it's a long introduction. Today, we're going to be looking at how far God was willing to go to reach These moral monsters, right? Palm Sunday is the Sunday of moral monstrosity. It shows us that even at our best, we are still controlled by our worst. And all of us, whichever crowd we're in, rule keepers, rule breakers, rebels, or performers, all of us need grace. All right, let me remind you where we are in in the discussion in in Romans 5, uh, specifically in relation to the law. Um, Paul is writing to the Romans, which is predominantly a Gentile church with a predominant Jewish subculture. It started out as Jewish until Nero kicked them all out of Rome. And then when they returned, it became a predominantly Gentile church, or non-Jewish church. Um, So the Jews had become believers, but they had a very hard time walking away from their tradition, a very hard time walking away from their culture. We're all shaped by our culture, right? We're all shaped by our childhood and 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 the values of of those that surround us. And the Jews thought that the law, the Old Testament law, had been given to them uh, not just to make them different, but to make them better, right? They they took great pride um, that, that of all of the people groups of the earth, they were the covenant people of God. They were the ones that God, through Moses, made a unique covenant of law, right? So there are a lot of religious people in the world, but no one else had this religion. No one else had a religion that was defined by the very law of, of God, a set of religious rules handed to them by the creator, God himself, right? Now, now, if you're not familiar with what I mean when I say the law, I'm talking about what we call the Mosaic Covenant. It was the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. Most people associate it with the Ten that that's its most obvious manifestation right probably the most well known aspect of of the Mosaic Law, um, you know, those commandments that we love to see posted in public places, right? We want to see them posted in schools and, and in courthouses because, um, you know, if, if we don't post the Ten Commandments, people will be immoral. Uh, the Ten Commandments were really just a down payment of a much greater law. There are 613 commandments in the law, not 10. 10 are the summary, but there were 1600, 613 commandments that um, governed every aspect of Jewish life, What you ate, when you ate, how you ate, what you wore, where you went, who you did business with, how you did business with them, how you did business with uh, Jewish people, how you did business with non-Jewish people, Uh, what the ceremonial cleansings were necessary for different kinds of, of, like, interacting with with Gentile people, touching a dead body, coming in contact with whatever, right? There were so many laws, they governed every aspect of Jewish life, and they made the Jewish people unique or as the King James puts it, peculiar in the ancient world. They were a peculiar people. They were strange, right? They were unlike any other people group, and and, and that was unintentional, right? The law set them apart, and they obeyed the law. And they came to believe that their obedience to the law was not only an expression of devotion to God, but made them better than others. Right? Why else would God give them the law if not to make them the good guys of the earth? Well, Paul's already given us the first reason in Romans 3.20. Let me remind you, in Romans 3.20, Paul has already told uh, the Romans that uh, the law was given for a very specific reason, right? For by the works of the law, those who obey the law, who labor under the law, who try to, to, to keep the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No, no one's going to be declared right by obeying the law. No one, no one is going to be able to fix themselves even though they're trying to use the perfect tool to do so. Why? Because since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? The law wasn't given so that you could fix yourself. The law was given so you could realize you couldn't. Right? God didn't give the law to make them less bad. He gave the law to show them how bad they were. Right? He wasn't showing them their faults so that they could fix them. It was showing them their faults so that they could see how unfixable they were. The law was, was a gift, not because it could help them be better people, but because it could prepare the way for grace by showing them they couldn't be better people. That even with a perfect tool, they could not perform any kind of self-improvement, self-fixing, um, self-salvation project, Right? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law acted as a perfect mirror, which we need because, because we're addicted to funhouse mirrors. You guys know what I'm talking about. Those funny mirrors that change the way you look, right? And, and they're wavy and, and, you know, and you go and stand in front of them and, and at first you're like, ooh, I don't like that because it makes my midsection look like this. So we like, you know, we move a little bit so it broadens the shoulders and narrows the hips and, 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 and honestly, most of us, we spend most of our time in life trying to see ourselves. Like we want to be seen. We don't want an accurate vision of ourselves. We don't want an accurate vision of our motivations. Why do I do what I do? Not only what do I do, right? We don't, a lot of times we don't even want to see what we do. We definitely don't want to see why we do what we do, right? We want to, like, I did a good thing. That was a good thing to do, right? And it's like, yeah, but why'd you do it? Because I like to feel good about myself. Because I felt guilty because I knew so-and-so would be watching, because I was hoping so-and-so would would give me praise. I I was hoping that I would become more significant. I I was hoping that that, that this person might love me more. I was hoping, right, the motivations beneath the behaviors, right, the law was intended to give us an accurate picture, right, of who we are. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He he says, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good, right? That's the gift of the law. Keep trying. Keep trying. You're not getting there yet. You want to try a little harder? Okay. Yeah, you're still not getting there, right? It is those who have labored diligently and honestly who come to the realization that no amount of labor can get you there, right? But the deceptiveness of our sin goes so deep, right? Some of us will try very hard to be good. And even though we know we're not as good as we could be, we subtly start comparing ourselves to others to make ourselves feel good, at least in comparison to them. Like, like I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not you, right? I know I'm, I, you know, I know I've got faults, but I'm not them, right? And and what we do through that subtlety is that we start building the funhouse mirror again. And 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 the mirror is no longer the righteous and holy law of God; it, it becomes our comparison with others. I'm better than you, therefore I'm not as bad as you. And if I'm not as bad as you, then clearly I'm good, right? Right? Um, we're going to try very, very hard to deceive ourselves through comparisons with others to, to shroud the reality of who we are. We start feeling pretty good about our accomplishments. And we start feeling pretty superior about other people's failures. So, listen, the law. God knew we were going to do this. God knew that the Israelites were not only going to... Um, receive the law and fail in trying to keep it, he knew they were going to misappropriate the law and try to use it as a source of pride. So he built something else into the law. Not only does the law show us our sin, right? The law increases it. Take a look at verse 20 in in chapter 5. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more first time I read that, I was like, I think I misread that. that. That can't say what I think it says. God gave the law to increase the trespass? Really? Like, the law doesn't just show me my sin. It makes it worse. Like, that was God's intention? So that sinners would become more sinful? You mean the law wasn't given so I could become better? That, that these rules don't make me a better person. They actually stir me into becoming worse. So let's dig in and pay special attention to what this verse is saying, right? It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in, which is kind of a funny phrasing. It's worth pausing and paying attention to, right? The law came in. It's a phrase that means that the law came in and alongside something else, right? Paul uses it in other places to describe the law. And what he's saying is that the law came in to the redemptive history God was already working out to save us and deliver us. It came in alongside right? So in the Old Testament, there's a series of promises, unconditional promises, right? It begins in Genesis 3, where God promises that there will be a seed of the woman. So even though his, 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 he- his heel will be bruised, he will crush the head of our enemy, right? It, it is the very first preaching of the gospel, the very first promise that God will send a hero deliverer who will ultimately, through his wounding, deliver us from our, our death, okay? Um, and, and then that, that promise is reiterated through a series of covenants through the Old Testament, right? That promise is, is reiterated to Noah, right? That, that promise is, is reiterated to Abraham. That promise is reiterated to David. And each time it's, it's filled in and fleshed out a little bit more. Each time that we get more details about who the hero is going to be and, and what he's going to do and what God's plan is to, to bless us through it. We call these the, the covenants of promise, Each one is an unconditional promise that God will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. The greatest of those, of course, is the new covenant that was inaugurated by Christ himself. right When he came and and through the work of of his death, burial, and resurrection, inaugurated the, the true and greater covenant. All the other covenants looked forward to and anticipated the work of Jesus. They all pointed to it. But the Mosaic covenant was different. It was not in the same line of promise, right? Those covenants of promise said, I will do for you, is God saying, I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. I, through the work of your hero, Savior, will save you. The covenant of law said, if you want to be blessed, you need to earn it. All right? Those who obey will be blessed, those who disobey will be cursed. The law came alongside the covenants of promise. And it was different. It itself was not a covenant of promise, it was not a covenant of grace, it was a covenant of law, and it came alongside the other covenants to serve those covenants. That phrase, to come in alongside, in the original Greek, um, actually has a, a negative connotation. Every time that phrase is used in the New Testament, it means something bad. Something bad came alongside. Now, I'm not saying the law is bad. We'll get to that. Romans 7, we'll get there, right? I'm not saying the law is bad. But I'm saying that it served a purpose that was in the negative, where the covenants of promise were serving a purpose in the positive, right? The connotation was different, right? It's the difference between saying someone is assertive or bossy, right? Or or, or saying that they're persistent or demanding, right? This phrase carries this negative connotation to come alongside in in a negative way, It came alongside redemptive history, not as a positive, not to make it better, but but to serve it and to magnify it. So why did God lay the law of Moses alongside the covenant promises that led to Christ, right? Why did he bring this this negative thing in that was going to increase sin, right? Specifically for that reason, to increase the trespass. Now, it is interesting that he, he uses the singular here. He doesn't say to increase the number of sins, He says to increase the trespass. Now based on the rest of of Romans 5, what we've already been studying, we realize that he's talking about the trespass of our first father, Adam, that is also our trespass. The heart of all sins or the foundation of all sins is this sin. We want to be like God. We want to un-God God. God. We want to be little gods right? That sin is the foundation of every other sin. That trespass where where we have said, you're not going to be the center of the universe. I am. I'm not going to revolve around you. You're going to revolve around me. And, and, And I am now going to look to the things God created to do for me what only God can do, to be for me what only God can be. I will be like God. I will define the boundaries of my own glory. I will pursue my own pleasure. I will establish my own significance. I will determine my own worth. Right? The trespass. The purpose of the law was to increase the trespass, the effect of that original sin, the sin that is the heart of every other sin. The law was given to reveal the depth of this sin by making it worse. How does it make it worse? Well, Paul's going to dig into that in Romans 7. We're going to get to that, he's going to explore that very question. Uh, more deeply in the future but i want you for now to think again about that story of the prodigal son right the prodigal son is really the story of two brothers it's not the story of the prodigal son it's the story of two brothers with a prodigal father right We, we talked about that both sons want the blessing only the father could give but they want that blessing without the burden of relationship to get it the younger son i want you to pretend to be dead give me my inheritance the older son i'm willing to play with the rules and do what I'm supposed to do in order to earn it. The father treated them both the same. He gave them both what they asked for. And in their moment of need, he reached out to both of them in grace. He went out to them. He dishonored himself to meet them in their place of dishonor. When the younger son came back and, and, and he ran down the road to, read him, uh, to greet him, he, he covered his, his young son with his own dignity the dignity of love and acceptance. And when the older brother refused to come to the party, he went out to him and tried to do the same. Both wanted to use the father, but both disrespected the father, and only one received grace. The younger son was amazed by the boundless nature of that grace. That's the beautiful aspect of this story. I mean, he was just undone. Undone. Because he was aware of his degradation. He was, he, was just, he was covered in his shame. He couldn't hide it anymore. I mean, he was walking up the road covered in pig poop. You know what I'm saying? Like he came out of the field, he, he, couldn't, he, didn't, he couldn't go clean himself, he could not go clean himself up. He had no way to hide, no way to pretend. And he came covered in his shame, and he was met. By the exuberant love of a father. A father who had been standing there waiting for him, watching for him, so eager that when he saw him, he ran down to meet him. Embraced him. Covered him. Gave him his ring of power and authority. This son who was lost has returned. Beautiful. The young son, man, was undone by grace. The older son was offended by it. How dare you give me grace when I have earned blessing? The older son doesn't consider himself ever in need of grace. He might occasionally need a little help, but he's not a charity case. He's not one of those, one of those guys who's, who's just completely helpless. Degraded, unworthy. And as a result, the story ends with him outside the party. In the darkness alone, bitter, angry, feeling defrauded and robbed. He felt so justified in his anger that he walked away despising even his father. See, the party exposed the older brother's self-righteous judgment, his need to make circles of acceptance. So here's what I want you to get. The rules stirred up sin. The rule increased the trespass. But it did it differently based on the wiring of the two sons, on how they approached God. For one, the rules created boundaries that seemed like the fullness of life's on the other side. They need to break the rules to get there. For the other, he, he was like, the, rule, the fullness of life is inside the rules. I'm going to keep the rules and earn life. And, 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 and they were both the same, the rule keeper, the rule breaker. The only difference was that the rule keeper had so deceived himself through his performance, through his morality, through his self-control, through, through his, that he really got to a point where, where he despised grace. I don't need grace. I might need a little help, but I don't need grace. I'm not like him. To the point that he would walk away from the very party that he was invited to. To protect his dead works. The good works he did to earn life as opposed to receiving grace. Yeah, you know, the beauty of grace, no matter how bad the problem gets, grace is still the solution. Always. Always, right? That's where verse 20 goes, right? He, he says, um, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. Yeah, yeah, the law increased the trespass. Yeah, the law stirred up more sin. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. There was enough grace for both sons. The issue wasn't the amount of grace. The issue was the posture of the heart. And the posture of the heart of the moralist. The posture of the heart of the religious performance artist, the posture of the heart of the one who keeps the rules and justifies themselves by keeping it all straight. It says, I must prove myself to earn my blessing. And if I have to receive grace, it it discounts everything I've already done. I have to walk away from my great treasure trove of self-righteousness. I have to walk away from all of these trophies that I've been lining my walls with that mark my superiority, that mark my obedience, that mark how I have done what I was supposed to do, and where you didn't. See, our self-righteousness becomes the greatest barrier to receiving imputed righteousness. Why would I receive as a gift what I've earned on my own? Because if I receive it as a gift, it actually discounts what I've earned on my own. I have to actually admit that everything I've done wasn't any good, that I've never kept the rules, that I've never performed good enough, that I have never actually achieved what I thought I was achieving. I also have been exposed. I also am covered in my shame. It might look different than the pig poop that covers my younger brother. But it is just as defiling and it is just as disgusting. My need is just as great. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Y'all, there's an invitation to the party. For you. But there's only one way to receive it, to walk away from your works of death or to walk away from your dead works, to walk away from the rebellion by which you keep crossing the lines thinking that you're going to somehow find the fullness of life and the things that God has forbidden, or to walk away from your performance by thinking you're going to find the fullness of life by obeying all the rules you think that he expects you to obey. We need to walk away from our deadly earning and our deadly rebellion. And walk in to the embrace of the Father. The solution is not to get better, be better, do better, try harder. The solution is to be loved, to run to the embrace of the Father, to be clothed with the cloak of imputed righteousness, to be given the ring of authority in the kingdom of God, not based on what you've done and not earned by how you've performed, but by simply receiving the grace that was won for you through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Savior. This results in living in two very different worlds. That's what verse 21 is about. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As sin reigned in death. So, sin, the picture Paul is making here is, is of a kingdom, Adam's kingdom, right? We're still in the context of Romans 5. We're describing two kingdoms, the the kingdom of Adam and the kingdom of the last Adam, the the kingdom of of the first Adam who made a choice of rebellion and the kingdom of the last Adam who who made a choice of obedience, right? The first kingdom who brought death into the world, the second uh, kingdom uh, uh, who through his one act of obedience brought life into the world through the gift of grace, forgiveness, and renewal, right? And so in these two kingdoms, we see two fundamentally different principles. In the kingdom of Adam, sin sits on the throne and it operates its power through death, right? So sin is on the throne. The trespass is at the heart of the kingdom of Adam, and its power is death. Now, remember, death isn't the cessation of existing, right? When I die, I don't cease to exist. Death is fundamentally separation. When I die physically, my spirit is separated from my body. I'm born in, in, in spiritual death, which I've inherited from Adam, that's separation from God, the source of life. Right? What happens when a marriage dies? What happens when a friendship dies? Right? What happens? It's separation. Fundamentally, death is separation from what gives life. The power of sin, sin sits on the throne and operates its will through death. Physical death, spiritual death, emotional death. Which is why Paul is exposing our persistent need to other others to create circles of in and out, acceptance and rejection, blessing and judgment as fundamentally evil. Because that is fundamentally the heart of the kingdom of Adam, this kingdom of sin that operates through the power of death. I separate myself from you because I'm not like you. I'm better than you, right? Politically, socially, morally, religiously, I create circles of in and out. And sometimes these are are active circles where we demonize those with whom we disagree, right? We have seen this really, really powerfully over the last year politically and, 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 and culturally. Where people not only disagree with each other, but actively demonize each other, right? They're not just wrong, they're evil. I don't just disagree with them, they're Satan's spawn, right? I'm, we don't just have different policy agendas. If they get power, the entire world's going to melt down. Because they are the incarnation of evil, right? So it's active dehumanization. Active, active um, uh, attack which has actually led to physical attacks and physical violence and even physical death, right? Sometimes, though, it's passive. Sometimes sin exercises its power through passive separation, where we exercise our power to stop seeing what we don't want to see. We use our power to separate ourselves from those things that, that cost us something, and we don't, want, we don't want to pay the price. It's all about me, my security, my comfort, my influence, my significance. I want to be like God, I don't want to be humbly dependent on God, and for me to be like God means I can exercise my power to not have to deal with what I don't want to deal with. I don't have to look at that, I don't have to see that, I can live in places where I don't have to see poverty, I can choose to, to, to have conversations that don't challenge me to see uncomfortable things about my, my country's history or the reality of its current existence. I can avoid things that, that expose me to ideas that, that, that are threatening to me because there are people in my country or in my culture that are suffering in ways I don't want to admit or see because it'll cost me something to actually see it. Since it's on the throne, death is its power. But as sin reigned in death, the verse concludes, so grace reigns through righteousness. In the kingdom of Christ, sin is no longer on the throne. Grace is. I love that. Not morality, not performance, not right doctrine, not right practices. Those are all good things. What sits on the throne? Love. Love sits on the throne. Undeserved, unmerited, unmeasured love. Grace sits on the throne. And grace exercises its power through righteousness. As sin reigned in death, so grace reigns through righteousness. Of course, that's speaking about the imputed righteousness we've received from Christ right? His death, burial, and resurrection. He lived the life I should have lived, died the death I deserve to die, and then rose again. And when I believe in him, that act of obedience is imputed or or attributed to me. Before God, I stand as righteous as Jesus is righteous, right? I stand in an alien righteousness. Grace operates its power, through righteousness. But it's more than just the imputed passive righteousness that I receive from Christ. It's the act of righteousness that grows in my life as somebody who's been loved. In other words, since love sits on the throne, I not only receive the gift of righteousness, I am transformed to become an agent of righteousness. The word for righteousness, the Greek word, at its root means justice. That which is just, I am, when I am in the kingdom of Christ, an agent of justice. I am to exercise my power to bring the fullness and flourishing of life. Not, not, to, not to protect myself, but to protect the vulnerable, not to enrich myself, but but to see the fullness and flourishing of life shared with others. I am to become an agent of righteousness, which means that I am going to, I need to be looking for those on the margin. I need to be caring for those who can't care for themselves. That's why James says that true and undefiled religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their distress, to actually receive righteousness of Christ, but to become an agent of justice for those who cannot operate for themselves because they've been disempowered by a kingdom of death that robs them of their power and is leeching and exploiting them for their own comfort and gain. The kingdom of Christ manifest in this broken world is going to lead us to love recklessly because we have been loved recklessly by a prodigal God. Hmm. Now this leads to some uh, tricky questions. Well, Steve, if that's true, if that's really what's true, if, if, if where I sin, grace abounds... And the solution to that is simply, the, the solution to my sin is to be loved. I am going to, uh, you know, not performance, not, not religious. What's going to keep me from just sinning? If, if there's more and more grace when I have more and more sin, isn't God glorified when I just sin more and more? That's a great question. In fact, that's the next question Paul's going to dig into. And the solution to that is to look at the resurrection of Christ, which we're going to do next Sunday. So join us next Sunday as we dig into that question and explore how the resurrection of Christ delivers us from such foolishness. For now, let's close in a word of prayer and uh, then share communion together. Father, I thank you that you are a God of love, ridiculous, abundant love, that, that grace sits on the throne of your kingdom. Unmerited, undeserved, unbounded Love that is poured out on us, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we merit it, not because in any way the cloak fits us, but because you love us and you want to dignify us as those that you love. You are a good father and you want to see your sons and daughters covered with the glory you created us to have. Lord, I would pray that we would hear this invitation more than we would hear anything else. That we can set aside our pursuit of self-centered pleasure. We can set aside, we can come to you in, in covered in the filth. We can come to you in our addictions. We can come to you in, in in our frustrations. We can come to you in our bitterness. We can come to you with our unforgiveness. We, we can come to you as, as those who have, have been abused or those who have abused. We can come to you for grace. And Lord, we can come to you if we have tried so very, very hard to be good, to build a record that establishes our righteousness, to fill our trophy case with all of our obediences. We can come to you and And just leave it behind. We can come to you to be loved. Not because we've earned it, but because we can. You invite us, Lord, both out of the the pigsty and out of our dead little trophy case. You invite us. Awaken our hearts to receive that invitation. Awaken our hearts that we might want love more than we want pleasure, that we might want love more than we want significance. We might want love more than than we want security or comfort because we know, Lord, that it is only love that can give us those things anyway. It is only when we are embraced by you and, and your cloak is wrapped around us and your ring is placed on our finger that we know what it is to be secure or significant, to find pleasure and rest, to feel worthy. Awaken our hearts to this invitation this morning.